And I invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So we are taking a, a one-week break from Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, don't worry, do not fear, it'll just be a one-week break. Um, but we are taking one break, one-week break. On October 31st, 1517, uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, sparking a, a movement that would bring the light of the gospel to countless people, changing and transforming the world forever through the Protestant Reformation. Therefore, today, on October 31st, many Christians around the world uh, celebrate Reformation Day, commemorating the Protestant Reformation and celebrating our Reformed heritage. And one of the lasting messages that came out of the Protestant Reformation can be summarized into the five simple statements known as the five solas. And, and though these, these truths come straight from Scripture, they were long forgotten in the early 1500s before Martin Luther and others, um, before Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Castle Church door, and these, these five key Reformation truths called the solas, or the alones in English, they, they are so important to keep before us. And they are Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and for God's glory alone. And you see, they all, they all fit together. So the, the doctrine of sola scriptura, or that scripture alone is the only infallible and inerrant authority over our faith and life, was the true cause of the Protestant Reformation. And through the study of the Bible, Martin Luther and others became convinced that when we look into scripture alone as the only infallible authority, it tells us that salvation is by grace alone. And the way to receive that grace is by faith alone. And the one we put our faith in is Christ alone, for he is our only Savior. Redemption from our sins is only found in Christ, in his shed blood. And finally, as the last solace says, all of that is worth praising God for, so let's give all the glory to him alone. So the five solas, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and for God's glory alone. And since the, the first sola is scripture alone, it seems fitting that we look closely at, at that sola today. And so we'll do that by looking at these two verses, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And th these are likely two verses you've heard before. Uh, I often include them in some way in my prayer just before the sermon. Um, these are po quite possible that, that, that you have memorized these verses or you've helped your kids memorize these verses but what I've been praying for our time today is, is that we would not just, not just be familiar with these verses and not just be able to say, okay, I believe they're true, but that we would really, we would really understand them, really appreciate them. Because if we do, these two verses can and they will change our lives. If, if we get a hold of them and they get a hold of us, if, if, if we understand them, and we live them out, then they will continue to impact our church. They will impact our homes, our families. They'll impact our lives. Now, these two verses show up in many theological works as proof texts for the authority of Scripture, the inspiration, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of Scripture, and, and rightly so. These verses are quite clear about the Bible's authority and about the Bible's sufficiency, but these two verses are much more than merely proof texts. They have life life-giving life-sustaining life-directing 
applications and implications for our church, for our families, and for our lives. And, and to get at the, the, the heart of the, the implications and the applications and what's at stake in these two verses, I think it's helpful for us to remember the context of Paul's letter to Timothy, the second Timothy letter, because this is a letter that Paul wrote knowing that his death was not that far off. So he knows his death's not that far off, so he's writing final instructions to his dear, beloved, true son in the faith, Timothy. And so with that in mind, think about that. Think about what would you say to someone you love dearly, you care deeply about them, what would you say if you knew this is my last conversation with them? This is the last phone call, the last text, this is the last email, this is the last thing I'm going to say. You know, what, what would you say? You'd be incredibly careful to say that which is most important, to say that which is crucial, that which is essential, that which you, you did not want them to miss no matter what, and that's what Paul does to Timothy 2,000 years ago, and that's what Paul's doing to us even today, telling us what we must not miss, what is essential. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient, life-giving word, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And we'll look at these two verses under two headings. We'll first look at the Bible's authority, and then second, look at the Bible's sufficiency. So the Bible's authority and the Bible's sufficiency. So first, the Bible's authority. And we'll look at the, the, the first phrase of verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Simply put, that the Bible is God's Word to us. It's breathed out by God. That is, it originates from the very heart of God. Whenever you speak, you, you breathe out your words, right? Your breath, conditioned by your mind, produces speech. Well, the Bible is God's speech to us. And look at how verse 16 begins. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Do you know what that Greek word that's translated all means? See, some of you have picked up on this. It means all. It means all. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. Every book in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. But not only every book, every word in every book. That all means all. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And that's significant for us today, because I've heard it many times. Many times on the TV, I've read it many times on social media and various blogs and in different books, that people will attempt to explain away some of the Bible, and they'll use this argument. They'll say, well, we don't have to take, it, we don't have to take what the Bible says there, for example, what, the, what, what Paul wrote seriously, because Jesus didn't say it. The people will attempt to say, you know, the, the red letters of what, the, of what Christ said, that's what's really important. And so, so if, if, if Jesus didn't deal with these specific doctrines or these specific ethical implications and commands, then, okay, we, then this, we don't have to take it that seriously. The, the rest of it is just, you know, it, it, it's up to us. We can be flexible. But that's not what the Bible says about itself. 
That all means all. All scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. From Genesis to Revelation. And this means that we're not free to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we like. Or, or which of the commands we want to obey. Or, or which of the doctrines that we want to believe. That all scripture is breathed out by God. That, that I'm not free to, to believe and to teach and preach what I want the Bible to say. That, that I, I'm, I'm compelled, I am bound to, to believe and to teach and to preach what the Bible says. Dear Christian, you are not free. You are not free. I don't know when we started thinking we were. You're not free to believe and, and, to, and to teach and to preach and to share with others what you want the Bible to say. That we must believe and we must teach, we must preach, we must share what the Bible actually says. For what Scripture says, God says. What Scripture says, God says. See, Christianity is not built upon what people think about God and what we think about the world. That Christianity is not built upon us deciding, okay, all right, we're going to create this box, and then, and then the God that we think of has to fit inside this box. And he has to be the way we want him to be. No, we, we have the Bible, and God has given us his word. And Christians believe that the Bible is God's self-disclosure to us. That God came to us and revealed himself to us. That the Bible is God's revelation from his heart to us. And so we call the writings found in the Bible the word of God because God is their ultimate author. And the words of the Bible carry with them God's authority. And so I say that God is the, the, ultimate, the ultimate author of the Bible because the books of the Bible have human authors. And this is no secret. I mean, we're, we're in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, there's no secret that the Apostle Paul is the human author of 2 Timothy. You know, we've been in, in Ephesians 1 for a while. We'll be there for a little while longer. And chapter 1, verse 1 makes it clear that the Apostle Paul is the human author of, of Ephesians 1. However, the books of the Bible are God's words to us, written down by human authors as they were carried along by or guided by, or inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And don't think about these men being carried along in the sense of them just drifting. And just kind of floating around. No, these men wrote down exactly what God desired to be written. They were carried along. They were guided. They were, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you'll see that as we study the 66 books of the Bible, we notice that each of these human authors has his own literary style, his own vocabulary, his own special emphases, his own perspective. You know, for example... I'm doing a Bible study on Tuesday morning with, with the men of our church. And you know, James strikes our hearts in a different way than the Psalms do. And you may have noticed whenever we transition you know, from, from the Psalms in the summer to Ephesians 1 that the Apostle Paul strikes our hearts in a different way than the Psalms do. You know, one of you told me, you know, I, really, I, really like this, I really love the Psalms. 
just as we were about to start Ephesians 1, and, and I know what, what you meant was, I really, really love the Psalms. Can we stay in them? You know, because of the way they strike our heart. In Ephesians 1, Ephesians strikes our hearts in a different way. You know, th- th- this past week, I, I ha- you, you guys know I've, I've been up to my eyeballs in Ephesians 1 for the last couple of months. Well, this past Wednesday, I had to write a new sermon in Genesis. And I went to College Station and preached to the RUF students at Texas A&M. And it struck my heart how, how different Genesis chapter 8 and that historical narrative is from Ephesians chapter 1. Yet, the church historically and we today believe the human authors did not merely write their own opinions, but that their words were inspired by God. That this is what the Bible says about itself. It is God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, before we go any further, there's There's an invitation that I've got to make, and there's a challenge. Okay, first, the invitation is for those of us who are here and we're not yet Christians. And I make this invitation, and I make it sincerely, because I'm glad that you're here. We are glad that you're here, been praying for you, expecting, planning on you to be here. But in a sanctuary this size, each and every Sunday, I expect there to be a mixed bag of people here. There's just too many people here for that not to be the case. And so if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, then here's my invitation to you, and I mean this sincerely. I do not mean this to provoke you or to belittle you, but I'm sincere about this. That I invite you to take up and read the Bible for yourself. And I extend that invitation because I know what my own life was like. And I don't think I'm alone. I think lots of, lots of young adults and older adults were like I was, that before I came to know Christ as a young adult, I had spent very little time in church and I'd never opened up a Bible for myself. I'd never opened it up, I'd never read it for myself, and yet I had decided that, you know what, I don't want to read it because I'm not going to like what it says. And I had decided I'm going to reject the Bible and I'm going to reject church and I'm going to reject the claims of Christ without ever really knowing what it says. So my invitation for you is to take it up and read. Take it up and read for yourself. And you may be thinking, well, okay, well, 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 Richard, but why should I? I mean, well, I mean, will you, are you able to defend the Bible against my, my questions and my doubts and my hesitations and my objections? And, and my answer to that is, is an answer that, that Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, gave whenever he was asked to defend the Bible. He said, defend the Bible? I would just as soon defend a lion. Unchain the Bible and it will defend itself. And I don't say that to provoke you or to belittle you, but what I say is to take up and read. Take up and read for yourself. And if you do, as you do, you do it sincerely, you will see this is no mere book. This is no mere book. That all scripture is breathed out by God. That's the invitation. But for those of us who are Christians... There's a challenge here. There's a challenge, and in John Calvin, the Protestant reformer, he put it well. He said, if you believe this, if you believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, if you believe all Scripture is breathed out by God, then it is beyond all controversy that you ought to receive it with reverence. That we owe to the Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from Him alone. And so is that how we receive the Bible? 
Do we receive it with reverence? With the reverence which we owe to God, to the word of God. Is that how we receive the Bible? Is that how we read it? Is that how we receive it when it's taught to us? Is that how we listen to sermons? Or are we, are we like sermon taste testers? You know, oh, I like when he did that. You know, I like the way he did that. And, you know, he's so handsome. And, and uh, you know, and, and, and he's so funny. I, I like that. Oh, I like, I, like, I like this little bit. I like this little bit. Or, or do we receive it as the word of God? Don't, don't think that you, that you are free to stand in judgment over the Bible. Rather, we need to arrange ourselves under the Bible, to submit to it, to receive it with reverence. A God-breathed word carries with it God's authority. Is that how we receive the Bible? Is that how we receive all of it? From Genesis to Revelation. See, Paul says, believe and trust the Bible. Why? Because of the Bible's authority. And then the next heading is the Bible's sufficiency. So look again at verses 16 and 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. That word profitable means the Bible is beneficial. It's productive. It's useful if we will use it. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And look at verse 17. That the man of God, specifically that's Timothy, but their applications, implications for all Christians... For all Christians may be complete equipped for every good work. In complete equipped, Paul uses two forms of the Greek word for equip, an adjective and a participle, because he's trying to double click on this, to highlight this, to emphasize this. And so what he says at the end of verse 17 is that the man of God, the people of God, may be sufficiently super equipped for every good work. Super equipped for every good work. So think about that claim. The Bible claims to be profitable and useful if we will use it. The Bible is sufficient to equip and guide followers of Jesus in how to live in God's world. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible in our lives to equip us to love others, to love God, and do what he commands. The Bible is sufficient to equip you to be a good friend and a good employer and a good employee and a good spouse and a good parent, and a good student, and a good child. If we will use it, and memorize it, and read it, and study it, and sit under the teaching of it, and the faithful preaching of it, if we will seek to obey it. It's an incredible claim of the sufficiency of the Scriptures. But if you look carefully at verse 17, there's also an implied warning in it. Do you see that? See, this is all that the Bible would do if we use it. But in that is implied Paul's warning to Timothy that if Timothy neglected the memorizing and the studying and the preaching and the application of the Bible, that he would be missing out. That he would not be equipped for every good work. So Paul's telling Timothy and us, use the Bible. Love the Bible. Read the Bible, hear it taught, hear it preached, memorize it. Why? Because it's sufficient. And look at verse 16. The Bible is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And if we let the Bible do all of these things in our lives, 
The result then is what we see in verse 17, that the people of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Or as Richard Phillips puts it, the only way to be a man of God is to be a man of the word of God. That the only way to be a woman of God is to be a woman of the word of God. So the Bible is sufficient, profitable, and useful in our lives, in our families, in our church, if we will use it. If we will use it faithfully, reverently, seriously, guided by and enabled by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so how are we to understand the Bible's sufficiency? We're not, we now have like four bullet points that we see in verse 16 of how Paul fleshes out the Bible's sufficiency. First, he says, the Bible is sufficient to teach us. So look again at verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So think about that. Think about all the things the Bible teaches. How would you summarize the Bible's teaching from Genesis to Revelation? Think about that. How would you summarize all of what the Bible teaches? That's a big question, but you don't, but here, you don't have to think so hard about it. Because we have a great gift in our Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number three asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So how do we summarize what the whole Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation? What we are to believe about God and what duty God requires of us. The Bible teaches us who God is and who we are. And how we are to live in God's world. So just think about this. Who God is. You can know the Bible. You can know the Bible without knowing God. And sadly, lots of people do. But you can't know God without knowing the Bible. See, the natural world tells us something about God's invisible qualities, his attributes, his creativity, his power, his existence. But if you want to really know God, and really know his heart, really know his character, really know him personally, then you must seek to know him through his word given to us in the Bible. It teaches us who God is. The Bible also teaches us the duty God requires of us. In other words, the Bible teaches us who we are and and what we were made to do. And the summary of what the Bible says about who you are, about who we are, is that we were made to love God, our creator, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And yet, not one of us does this perfectly, do we? That we, we, are, all, we are all sinners. And I know that word sin, I mean, it comes such a negative word. We don't like to talk about it. But I believe we don't like to talk about it because we understand it so well. That we all know there are things that we do and that we say and that we think and that we desire that do not honor God. And that's why we feel so guilty about those things. We're so ashamed of those things. You know, we we try to hide those things. And I know that we know that that, that we, we hurt and we wound people in our lives, even those who we're supposed to love the best. And I know that we know the pain and the sting that comes from them wounding us. And one of the greatest evidences that we all understand sin is because we all seem to have that spiritual gift of pointing out sin in other people's lives. Right? We're so good at it, right? That they should not have done that. That was wrong. That was selfish. That was immoral. That's unjust. And only the Bible teaches us 
about not only who God is, he's holy and perfect, who we are, that we fail to, to live the way he made us to live, loving him, loving our neighbors. And only the Bible teaches us about the, the, the Savior of sinners. Only the Bible teaches us who Jesus is and the salvation that he offers. See, only the Bible tells us that, that the salvation that Jesus gives to all who trust in his life, death, and resurrection. You see, the Old Testament prepares us for this Savior who was to come. The Old Testament prepares us for this one, born of the woman, who was going to come to defeat Satan's sin and even death itself. And the, the Old Testament tells us in, in types and shadows to get ready and to prepare for this Savior who's going to come, who's going to redeem us through his own suffering, who's going to give his life in exchange for ours. He will shed his blood for the redemption of our sins. And then what we see in the New Testament is that this Savior, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. He's like us in so many ways. He took on flesh, but he's different from us in a key way is that he never sinned. He's righteous, perfect. And he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. And he went to Calvary's cross and he offered himself as our substitute on our behalf to die the death that pays our sin debt in full, that cancels our sin debt, that washes us clean, washes us white as snow from the crimson stain of our sin, that removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Then he rose from the grave three days later on that first Easter morning. You see, and the good news of the gospel is that for all who trust in Christ, our sins are forgiven because of Christ's death on the cross. But more, even more than that, it's not just that our sins have been washed away, but we've also, God the Father credits us with Christ Jesus' righteousness. He not only washes us clean from our sin, but he clothes us in Christ's righteousness. And that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead on that first Easter also raises us from our spiritual death. That we're made alive in Christ. That we're given new hearts. That we're born again. That we're given a new power to, to walk in newness of life. And the Bible alone teaches us all of this. Only the Bible tells us about who God is and who we are and who Jesus is. All that we need to know leading to our salvation and only the Bible teaches us about all we need to know about our sanctification. And sanctification is that theological word that simply refers to how God uses his spirit and his word and his church to grow and mature us as Christians. Our sanctification refers to how the Holy Spirit enables us to die more and more into sin and to live more and more into righteousness. And so we see the Bible is sufficient to teach us and the second thing, the Bible is sufficient to reprove us. So look at verse 16. All scripture breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof. See, the Bible exposes and reproves our errors. Our errors in doctrine and our errors in living. Whenever we don't believe the right things about God, who he is, and when we don't live in, according to the duties that he calls us to live. The Bible reproves our errors in doctrine and living. The scripture is the divine plumb line by which every thought, every principle, every action, every desire, every belief is to be measured. 
And whenever our thoughts and our principles and our actions and our beliefs and our words and our desires are out of line with God's word, then we're wrong. And God uses, graciously uses his word to reprove us. And this is not always pleasant, but it's always in love for our good. It's always in love for our good. And I don't know if Mark Twain actually said this, but it's, it's, it's credited to him, and, and I think it's very helpful. That's why it ain't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand, that, that confront me and that challenge me and that rebuke me and reprove me. But we need that. right, Dear Christians, we need the Bible to reprove us and to rebuke us often. And we should view the fact that the Bible has a way of, of convicting us and finding us out of our sin whenever we memorize it and read it and study it and hear it preached. That's all a, a gracious blessing. Because it's far too easy for all of us to be deceived about our own hearts. That we need to be regularly reminded of the truth about ourselves and our sin. We need our blind spots pointed out and revealed to us. We need our hypocrisy unmasked. We need our sin exposed for what it really is. We need our idolatry condemned. We need our immaturity challenged and corrected. And the Bible does this, for the Bible is the word of God. And the Bible is perfect in ways that we're not, so we should not be surprised whenever God says things in his word that challenge us and convict us and correct us and rebuke us. In fact, this is further proof that the Bible really is the word of the one true God. I mean, can you imagine how troubling it would be if every time you opened the Bible, God always agreed with you? I can't think of a scarier thought. That if every time I opened the Bible, God always, Richard, you're exactly right. This is exactly how you're supposed to be doing everything. So the Bible is sufficient to teach us and to reprove us. The third thing is the Bible is sufficient to correct us. Look at verse 16 again. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. And you could be tempted to think, okay, well, reproof and correction, they mean the same thing. Well, I understand why you would say that because they sound, they sound like they have similar meanings, but they're, very, they're two different words. Okay, and so that word that's translated correction um, contains the root word ortho, ortho like orthopedic or orthodontist. Um, sadly, I'm getting familiar with orthodontist, not orthodontal work in my family these days. But it could be, so therefore this word translated correction could be used as a medical term carrying the sense of setting right that which is broken or setting straight that which is crooked. So that word translated correction is a term used for healing or improving or correcting, setting straight a broken bone, or used to rebuild a ruined building, or to set a fallen object back upright, or to, to help a person who stumbled and fell back up onto their feet. And so you see, the correction that comes from the Bible restores us and heals us spiritually, but only if we accept the Bible's teaching and reproof. Only if we come to the Bible wanting to be taught and reproved and corrected. Then we see just how healing and comforting and valuable and life-giving the Bible can be whenever we submit to it and we accept it as 
God's word given to us in love for our good. And so the Bible is sufficient to teach us and to reprove us and to correct us. And lastly, it's sufficient to train us. To train us. So look again at verses 16 and 17. All scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible is sufficient to train us in righteousness. The word of God leads us, leads God's people into righteousness and holiness in our lives and in our beliefs. In what we believe about God and how we live out the duty he requires of us. In righteousness and holiness in our doctrine, our theology, believing the right things. And in our ethics, living the right way. All to grow us more and more into the image of Christ. Remember, right, the only way to be a man of God, to be a woman of God, is to be a man or woman of the word of God. And the Bible trains us. And that Greek word translated training is used elsewhere to refer to the rearing of a child. And those of us who are parents know that the rearing or the training of our children is an ongoing process, correct? You know, I've, I've, got, I've got wonderful children, four incredible angelic children, just incredible children. I love them. They're, they're precious children, ranging from high school down to early elementary school. But I have to confess that the Harris home would be very different if I only had to tell them one time about what to do in the bathroom and in their bedrooms and picking up after themselves and taking out the trash and washing dishes. If all it took was me telling them one time and then they were like, oh, dad, I get it, I understand. And they always did it that way. It'd be a very different home. But that's not how the training of children goes, right? Please tell me it's not just me. I, I think it's every. hopefully it's everybody. <laughs> that it takes, it takes repetition. Now, I do assume it ends at some point, but, and that's where the analogy breaks down, because the Christian's training in righteousness never ends. See, the Bible is sufficient to train us in righteousness, but the Bible does not equip you for every good work simply because you own one. The Bible does not equip you for every good work simply because you've read it from cover to cover one time. You see, there, there's a reason why the Bible is not arranged by topic. Do you know that? The Bible is not arranged by topic because it was never meant to be, to, to be treated merely as a reference book. It was never intended to be, to be closed and put on our shelf. And then whenever we're having an issue, we're having an issue in our finances, we take it off the shelf, look back in the index and say, okay, where does it talk about finances? Okay, here's where it says. Okay, okay all right, problem solved. Okay. We're having an issue with our marriage. Let me take it off. Okay, look back here. Where's the marriage chapter? Okay. All right, marriage problem solved. Now, the Bible is never meant to be used merely as a reference book. Now, you know, for goodness sakes, take it off the shelf and look in the back and find where it talks about marriage and finances and parenting and, and everything else and, and read what the Bible says. But that's not the way the Bible was meant to be used. You see, the Bible does not equip you for every good work because you have one. And you know where it is. That's even a bonus. But the Bible does not equip you for every good work just because you know the general storyline and the big picture of the Bible. Although that's great. The Bible does not equip you for every good work just because you've read it from cover to cover once or even multiple times. 
You see, the Bible is not a book that can be read and then moved on from. Okay, yes, 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 I get the general point. Okay, I'm done with it. A Christian's training in righteousness by the Holy Spirit using the Bible never ends once it begins. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, nobody ever outgrows Scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. And this is why we must be committed to memorizing it and preaching it and reading it and praying it and singing it and studying it over and over and over again. It's the Word of God. And it really is sufficient. But the preaching of the Word of God is a means of grace in our lives and in our homes and in our church. And God uses His Holy Spirit in the preaching of His Word to teach us and to reprove us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness so that we are complete equipped for every good work. There's nothing more powerful in the lives of Christians than the Spirit of God using the Word of God in the hearts of the people of God. And so we need to ask ourselves is this happening? And if it's not happening, what changes do we need to make? See, if, if we believe the Bible is sufficient to teach, reprove, correct, and train, and equip our congregation for every good work, then I will labor with all of my energy to preach the Word of God as, as clearly and as faithfully as I can. And you will support me in it. You'll pray for me. And it also means we must be committed to letting the Word of God determine what we do in our worship services. So simply put, we will seek to sing the Bible and pray the Bible and read the Bible and preach the Bible and see the Bible in the sacraments. So Christians, do we really understand and appreciate that the Bible is breathed out by God and sufficient for equipping us for every good work? You see, if we do, we will memorize it and we'll read it and we'll treasure it and we will repent whenever we've neglected it and we'll take it back up again. And we'll keep going. And we will love to hear it preached. And and you will demand that your pastors, all of them, preach God's word faithfully to you, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, without exception. And if we need to hear the Bible preached to us, then our children need us to teach the Bible to them. That it's really not enough just for them to get it on Sundays, and they do, but we need to be teaching it to them. And I know that can be overwhelming. But, but to still a line from the Home Depot commercial, you can do it and we can help. You can do it and we can help. Helen and Angela, they'll help you. They'd love to help you. Patrick would love to help you. Juan Carlos would love to help you. You can do it and we can help. This is way too important for us to ignore. And so let, let me end with this. Second Timothy says that God breathed out these words. In Deuteronomy 32, we read, Moses says that these words are not just idle words for us, but they are our life. In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Jesus tells us, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So think about that. If the scriptures were the very breath of God to Paul, life to Moses, and food to Jesus, they cannot be and must not be anything less to us. Dear Christians, they must be our our breath and our life in our food. That Paul says, believe, trust, teach, preach the Bible. Why? Because of the Bible's authority and because of the Bible's sufficiency. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, 
We thank you for your word, this God-breathed word. We pray that you would use it by the power of your spirit in our hearts and our lives. Lord, my, my prayer is that these two verses would convict and challenge those of us who need to be convicted and challenged to take your word more seriously in what it says about who you are and what we are to believe about you and more seriously what it says about who we are and the duty you require of us and how we are living. But I also pray, Father, that for those of us who are seeking to to memorize and read and, and study and sit under the preaching of your word, who love your word, I pray that these two verses would be, they would, they would provide great comfort and great encouragement that you really are faithful and that your word really is authoritative and it is sufficient to make them complete equipped for every good work. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.